You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thank you for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's show, we are going to be hearing from veteran fund manager, author, and uh, resource investor, Adrian Day of adriandayassetmanagement.com. Adrian, welcome back onto the show and you cover gold. So the first question will be related to gold, but not just gold, also inflation. In your estimation, how much anticipated inflation is built into the current gold price? Okay, well, um, thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. And I have to say that I, I always enjoy your, your interviews. They are always uh, among the very best I do. And part of that is because you always ask uh, interesting and uh, un- unexpected questions. Um, inflation and, and gold. I, I honestly don't think that very much inflation is built into the gold price. And of course, there's no way of telling that unless you had sharp spikes in inflation and sharp drops in inflation on a monthly basis, where you could correlate that with the gold price. But my sense is that there's not a lot of inflation built in. And partly that is because, of course, after 2000, you know, if you're basing if you're basing your expectation for high gold prices on what the central banks are doing, then people look to 2009 onwards and say, well, we had huge explosion of the money supply back then and nothing happened to inflation. Um, I mean, I think there's reasons, logical reasons, we can talk about later if you want, but logical reasons to say, oops, I was nearly going to say it's different this time. Those are the four most dangerous words. In <laughs> but I think it's the, the logical reason to think that 2021, 2020-21 are different from 2009, 10, 11, let's put it that way. But but no, I don't think there's much built in, frankly. And it's the big question everybody talks about, both the gold um, uh, bugs, if you want, or gold supporters, and the cynics or the uh, people who are skeptical about gold. Everybody talks about inflation. You know, one side saying it's coming back and the other side saying, look what happened after 2009. I, I mean, I, th- I think inflation is not as important to the gold price as, as, as both sides are imagining, frankly. That's another question as well. So is it perceived purchasing power that gold, the saving of the purchasing power that gold can provide, is that the key driver where people flood into gold, do you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. The central factor is what the central banks are doing around the world. The central banks are accommodating the unfunded spending of governments. And that, of course, picked up in 2020 uh, over previous years, but it's a trend we've been seeing, no question. Um, So yes, and that is, the dollar doesn't have to decline against other fiat currencies. It simply has to lose its purchasing power. And nobody, but nobody, um, not, not even Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke can, can dispute that the dollar has lost its purchasing power over the last 100 years since the Federal Reserve was created and over the last 20 years and particularly the last 10 years since they have started this, um, this policy of wild abandon with creating money. So that's the central thing. That can lead to inflation, 
uh, consume, as we typically define it, which is higher prices in the stores. But remember, inflation is not consumer prices. That's the result of inflation. Inflation is the increase in credit over the needs of the economy. And that can be, um, that can result, that can be evidenced in, for example, higher asset prices. And that's what we've seen over the last 12, 10 years, whatever, since 2009, since the credit crisis. We've seen a huge increase in the money supply. It has not until very recently gone to households and small businesses. It's gone to money center banks. And for a lot of reasons that we can talk about if you want, but for a lot of reasons, banks didn't lend the money out. And so that money went into the stock market, antique cars, rare art, modern art, <laughs> which shows you what side of that particular debate I'm on. <laughs> but it went into assets, not into consumer prices by and large, because it didn't reach households. Now that more money is getting to households directly uh, from the government um, and small businesses, and we can argue about the PPE program and how much of it is appropriate and how much really got to where it was intended and so on and so on. But more of the money is getting to small businesses and households. And once the COVID is over, during, during lockdowns, people didn't really have a lot of places to spend the money um, or limited places to spend the money. Once the COVID restrictions are over and people go out again, I think you're gonna see that money spent, not saved, and, and that's going to lead to higher inflation. Adrian, from your study of economic history, um, I'm assuming there's we're in a stock market bubble right now, although it could go higher because I thought we were in a stock market bubble back in 2015. But nonetheless, in fact, I remember the first time I interviewed you at PDAC 2017, I asked you about Dow 20,000 and what it meant. Well, that's so far behind us now. But, but nonetheless, when it comes to pricking this, the bubble, what typically happens or is it always unexpected or does it just happen as a course of history? What can you share with us about the topping of a, a major bubble? That's a really interesting, that's a really good question. Um, the thing about bubbles, of course, is that the timing of the end is sort of unknown. A bubble can continue getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, Alan Greenspan was completely wrong in my mind. Uh, when he said that, you know, bubbles are only noticeable in, in hindsight. The bursting of a bubble is only noticeable in hindsight, but that doesn't mean it's not a bubble. So, first of all, the timing is unknown. What normally, normally a bubble is burst by monetary tightening, not by a temporary exogenous event. So when we had the COVID hit, North had hit Europe and in North America, we kind of ignored it when it was just China. Um, we had a market, a, a very sharp market decline, but then the market resumed its upward move. Clearly the bubble wasn't burst by something like COVID. Now, if a pandemic that causes the economy, well, the government's used to shut down the, the economy, if that doesn't cause the bubble to burst, one might conclude from that that 
exogenous events, however bad, are probably not going to cause are not going to cause a bubble to burst. So what causes it is monetary tightening. And there's typically throughout history, and there is no particular um, there's no particular sign of that anytime soon. I think the odds are that the broad market continues to go up. You know, if it was a simple yes or no, a toy cost, I'd say it's more likely to go up because the Fed's going to create, continue to create money and some of that's going to go into stock market. But the problem with bubbles, even if you understand or can give a reason why they're happening, is that the higher, the longer they continue without the um, accompanying economic growth, then there's more risk in the market. That's the key. So when you're in a bubble, we don't know how high it could go. You know, we just don't know how high it could go. What we do know for certain is that there's more risk. And when a bubble is pricked, it can happen very, very, or popped, it can happen very, very quickly. That's the problem. And everybody, everybody you talk to says, I'm, I'm done, to, you know, everybody thinks they'll be the first one out. You know, they'll make sure they get out before everybody else does. Well, clearly not everyone can get out before everyone else does. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has a tight share structure, and with its current treasury, it can self-fund the advancement of its gold discovery into at least 2022. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. Since there's clearly no political will, at least here in the United States, for fiscal tightening, um, we're in handout mode. You know, is it the inability to print more money and do what they're doing? Essentially, is it going to be the decline of the dollar this time that could potentially bring it all down, bring the house of cards down? Yeah, I mean, at some point, as you say, there's no political will at all, and it's not just here; it's it's in Europe and in uh, Japan as well. Um, and, and, and the theory seems to be, well, if printing a lot of money didn't solve a problem, the answer must be to print even more of it. Um, it's time to go big, says Yellen. If we haven't been going big for the last 10 years, I'm not quite sure what we've been doing. But, but what's going to, what, 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 what can happen, what might happen is, as you say, we will continue printing enormous amounts of money until inflation picks up to a point where it can't be ignored. Um, you know, the Fed is preparing us for higher inflation by saying the 2% target is an average target. It doesn't mean once we hit 2%, we have to start tightening. So average over what? Average over, you know, two or three years or average over 20 years. And you know that they're going to delay tightening as long as they can. But at some point, inflation will be too difficult to ignore because the markets won't ignore it. At some point, the dollar, even though the dollar is, you know, at the moment, as they say, the prettiest mare in the blue factory. My daughter doesn't like me saying that because she loves horses. But <laughs> whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, 
Um, uh, the cleaner shirt in the laundry basket, let's say that. At some point, people will turn against the dollar for whatever reason. It might be political reasons. We've seen a lot of that from China and Russia already. So at some point, people will turn against the dollar. There'll be something that causes the Fed to have to act, even though they don't want to. Yeah, that makes sense. On a global level, because you invest globally, and I, I remember reading your book years ago, you look all, all over the globe for investments. What are some global themes that you could bring to my and my listeners' attention that you like right now? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because, you know, we invest in, we, we have both global accounts and, and resource accounts, golden resource accounts. And I tell you, when, when someone, if someone gives me money for a global account, wants to be conservative in a global account, and, you know, I don't really need gold because I've got that taken care of, it's really difficult to construct a, a portfolio right now. Now, in hindsight, throwing darts at the newspaper or barons would have produced a gain, but so, you know, the themes, the number one theme to me is, is gold. Because what the central banks of the world are doing, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, or we have talked about it, what the central banks of the world are doing um, is, is a perfect environment for gold to go up. So gold is my number, is the number one theme, uh, without a shadow of doubt. The number two theme uh, is commodities. And I know you want something broader than gold and resources, but the number two theme is, is commodities. Um, now, beyond that, there are, there are I, I don't know if there's any broad themes because those two take care of reflation. Those two take care of the reflation um, theme if that's what happens. So we don't want to put all our eggs in the reflation basket. I'm looking at a few things. I'm looking at extremely beaten down markets and believe it or not, there are some like Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been extremely weak for obvious, for known reasons even as the Chinese market has continued to go up. So that's a bit of a dichotomy. If Hong Kong was falling with China, you might not want to invest in Hong Kong. You might want to wait to see what happens. So, uh, you know, there are some very, very cheap stocks in Hong Kong. Some of the real estate stocks are just ridiculously cheap. We can, we can say that Hong Kong real estate is expensive and likely to decline. But when you've got um, when you've got real estate companies with residential, commercial, and office trading at maybe twenty five percent of book and trading at three four times earnings, that's a huge cushion. A huge cushion. So that's one. I think a second thing we're looking at is the British market. You know, ever since um, it's not super super cheap. But ever since uh, uh, the Brexit vote, the UK market has underperformed, you know, the uh, Morgan Stanley Capital International Index, world markets in general. And that's because of uncertainty rather than, uh, rather than shall we say, outright hostility to, to, to Brexit. It's just we don't know. And of course, you know, the negotiations dragged on uh, for years after the vote to leave. So I think some of those uh, companies are, we're looking there, some of those companies are quite cheap. And by quite cheap, I'm talking about 12, 13 times earn, earnings for the market and 
you know, uh, stocks with three or four percent yields. That's not bargain basement for the British market, but certainly relatively inexpensive. I think those are the two main areas that we're looking at. But and the third one I would just say is is really um, just individual stocks from a bottom up basis. Just and and normally because of some temporary event that causes a particular stock to collapse. And it may, it may, I mean, it's a temporary event and, uh, and the expect, and you're looking. So you have your eyes company. on GameStop here? What? No, no GameStop. <laughs> you know, I live in Puerto Rico, as you know, and, yep. and I, I've been buying the Banco Popular, which is the largest bank, uh, largest Puerto Rican bank. And, you know, that's, I mean, good quality bank, good, uh, good uh, deposit growth, etc. So all the fundamentals of it, but I'm I'm looking for a recovery in the Puerto Rico economy, which still is really is still in the recovery mode from Hurricane Maria, frankly, which is two three years ago, three years ago now. Um, so so you know it's just it's just idiosyncratic stocks rather than any particular theme, to be honest. Uh, I've been reading, Adrian, some articles on how we're looking at uh, super cycle and commodities over this next decade. But I've also wondered as I read the articles, what happened if we're going into a, a prolonged contraction, economic contraction? Can a commodity super cycle coincide with a global economic contraction? That's a really interesting question. I think that. I think first of all, we need to sort of say what we mean by a commodity supercycle. And typically by a commodity supercycle, we mean a period of many, many years, you know, at least 10 years, where all commodity prices or certainly resource prices go up at the same time over a prolonged uh, period of time. And throughout history, every every commodity supercycle that we can identify throughout history has been caused by a new source of demand. And that's important, and it may just be coincidence, but I think that's important to recognize. So in hist throughout history, up until now, you know, you look at 1825 to about, well, till the American Civil War, really, uh, commodities were in a huge move. That was, you know, 40 years. What did I say after the Napoleonic War is what I meant. Yeah, after the Napoleonic War ended, you had a decline in commodity prices because they went up during the war, of course, because of increased demand, and they declined. And then from about 1825 to the American Civil War, you had, that's, that's over 30 years or 30, over 30 years of, of price increases. And that was caused primarily by the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain, which, of course, caused a huge increase in demand raw materials. Second great uh, one was 1870, 1870 to um, really the end of the First World War, which was caused by first Germany industrialization and American industrialization. So those two, the second or third at the time, second and third greatest uh, industrial powers in the world, industrializing at more or less the same time, overlapping, that caused a huge uh, increase in demand. Again, after the Second World War, you had a bit of a decline and, and as this war spending ended, and then you had the industrialization in Japan primarily, and you had a, a, a mini commodity cycle. And then in the 60s, 
the other Asian commodities. And, and from 2000 onwards, of course, it, it was the commodity supercycle was primarily caused by the huge increase in Chinese demand. So the pattern has always been a new source of demand, not a sudden decline in, in, in uh, supply. So I don't, I don't see that at the moment. I don't see that at the moment, unless we get it from, you know, Indonesia, um, uh, Brazil, and other, you know, large. They used to be called emerging markets, but other large um, uh, 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 markets like that. What's interesting to me, and I'm giving you a long answer because none of these things are, are, are certain. What's interesting to me is that we could be heading into a period where a long sustained increase in prices is caused obviously by increased demand. We've had a recovery in demand from China. It's not a new source of demand. It's simply a recovery in demand. We'll get new demand from the US perhaps with infrastructure spending, although every president for the last um, six has talked about how infrastructure is so important to him, but somehow the next election gets in the way of something that's going to not reap rewards for 10 or 20 years. Um, but we could see more infrastructure spending. But I think, I think we're at a stage now where for a lot of commodities, um, gold is certainly one, but for uh, industrial commodities like copper in particular um, and over the longer term uranium and, and, and nickel and zinc less so zinc perhaps we have a potential deficit in supply that was never the case in the past if you think even over the last 200 years you know you wanted new there was always a new source of of supply, South Africa and Australia opening up and, you know, the Canadian gold rush, if you're talking gold, and then the Carlin trend in the 60s. All of these were new sources of supply but met whatever demand there was. I think we've pretty much explored the world at this point. Now, there'll always be new technologies, for example, and one day we'll be mining from asteroids. But in the, in the near term... I think we I think the big sort of risk or opportunity is a shortage of supply that will that will cause the prices to go up. Dore Copper Mining is a premier near-term high-grade copper and gold redevelopment opportunity with tremendous exploration potential only 14 kilometers from the town of Shibugamu in mine-friendly Quebec. Dore Copper is debt-free and owns a 2,700 ton per day mill with an 8 million ton tailings facility ready to be used. There is already power to site and it is accessible by paved highway and rail. Dore Copper aims to produce a profitable hub-and-spoke operation of over 100,000 gold equivalent ounces per year or over 60 million million pounds of copper equivalent by 2024. Because of the existing infrastructure and location, a low capex is anticipated to recommence production. Dore Copper trades under DCMC in Toronto and under DRCMF on the OTC. To learn more, go to DoreCopper.com. That's DoreCopper.com. If I'm right that we could see an economic contraction, a prolonged one, 
coming, then the safest commodities would be those where the supply side shortage is clearest. You said it in one minute, what I said in 10 minutes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And those are the ones I'm focusing on. So if you look at, say, iron ore, you know, there's no shortage of iron ore. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, the price, uh, as we've seen in the last 10 years. But there's no shortage of it in, 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 in the world in places where you can go and mine. You know, it's not all in Venezuela and North Korea. Um, the same, ironically, for so-called rare earths. There's no shortage of rare earths. Um, they're not that rare. Um, but again, it's a matter of, of, of price. But copper, there is a shortage. Um, you know, if, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. When it comes to your gold investments, I recently uh, talked to Steve Letwin, the former CEO of I Am Gold, and he said as part of that interview that uh, it's to be conservative, don't invest in gold projects or producers where their costs are above $1,200 per ounce, all in sustaining cost. What are your thoughts on that, Adrian? Obviously, that's that's not going for a leverage play, but um, Based on the excesses of the previous cycle, that was part of the context of what he was sharing. Right, right. And so you obviously you you obviously answered the question. The irony in in gold mining and other mining, the irony is when you start a new recovery or new rally or new bull market, at the beginning of that market, the worst companies sometimes have the best stocks. Because by worst, I mean the ones that have are highly leveraged. They have a lot of debt and they have high cost of production. Well, clearly, if gold goes from you know twelve hundred to fifteen hundred, the guy producing at thirteen hundred has a much greater growth in his earnings than the guy that's producing at six hundred. So the leverage play is precisely the ones that do best at the beginning of the bull market. Now, but and so the context of what he was talking about is obviously important. But, you know, I, I think as an investor, um, I prefer to invest, and I'm being simplistic here, I prefer to invest in good companies. So the good companies will be those who manage to keep their debt low during a bear market uh, that we had from 2012 to 2015, keep their, and keep their costs low. And those will tend to be better managements. And those better managements will tend to do well, even once the leverage plays have, um, you know, had had their day in the sun, shall we say? So yeah, I mean, I think I think twelve. And for me, twelve hundred in the current environment. I mean, obviously, twelve hundred to to eighteen hundred is a huge margin for any business. But twelve hundred is you know towards the high end of the. Um, cost curve right now. So, you know, I would even look for companies that are a little bit lower than that. Adrian, how do you approach uh, litigation plays in the mining sector? Like, especially with the development project, I invested in Tahoe Resources before Pan American bought their Escobar mine. And after the huge crash in the share price, assuming that they could restart that mine, it's still been years later, they haven't restarted it. Or you get the permitting plays, the Pebble Project, Northern Dynasty in Alaska, how do you approach these litigation, whether the permit's going to get issued or not, especially after there's been a steep sell-off and perhaps it's more attractive at that entry point? Yeah, I, my experience is 
over 30 years now, and even before that, frankly, before I was managing money when I was uh, just investing and, and writing. Um, litigation plays always take longer than you think, what you call litigation plays. Remember Bob Bishop, uh, uh, you know, he's a veteran of the industry and, you know, he he always said, you know, just I'm not going to invest in litigation plays again. And, you know, I like him, I've been burned once too often, you know, Crystal X in Venezuela and uh, we could name, we could name several. Now, so I don't invest in litigation plays. The only exception to that would be where I am very, very, very close to the situation. Now, it's a little bit different. Say you mentioned Escobar in, in Guatemala. Didn't want to invest in Tahoe, but investing in Pan American is a different situation. Now it's a free option, right? It's a free option. Yeah, it's a free option. Pan American has a lot of other assets. It's a good quality company at a good price Anyway, then you add on Escobar and you add on Navidad in Argentina, both of which are basically free option. You ask 100 investors in Pan American, you're paying $33 a share. How much of that are you paying for Navidad? For, for, for what? For what? What's that? You know, the mine in Argentina. Oh, I didn't. I don't know about that one. Nobody's paying any money for that. So it's a free option. And Pan American has shown over the years that it is it is very patient and they have made it absolutely clear on both of those projects. They're going to take their time. They're not going to bully their way through. They're going to take their time and wait until the local communities in both cases, well, in Argentina, the local government, as well as the community, but in, in Guatemala, the local community is on their side. And... Um, by the way, you said you had Tahoe. Did you did you get the takeover from Pan American? No, I sold before. I couldn't wait. Oh. I think I had maybe a twenty percent loss or something. It wasn't devastating, but I did not but hold you the devil. Would have got those convertibles, mm-hmm. you know, with the spinoff uh, PAASF, which is a, a little bonus they gave to the Tahoe shareholders. Um, and if if I mean they have a finite life, uh, if if Escobar is in production by twenty twenty eight and it's convertible at a certain ratio with the Pan American shares. And the ratio right now would give you Pan American shares at about $16 a share. I shouldn't be telling everyone this because I'm buying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, obviously, it's got a finite life. So if Escobar comes into production in 2030, you've lost out, sorry. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a good way of getting Pan American on the cheap. So things like that, I'm, I, I, I would definitely do. But if it's a single asset in a litigation or a contracted permitting fight, my experience is just, just leave it. Okay. And Adrian, last question before you go, because you're so bullish on copper and we've talked about how there's the supply side deficit, but on the demand side, have you done any forecasts for how the electrical vehicle revolution might impact future demand for copper? Yeah, I, I, well, I don't really, to answer your question, I don't really have an answer to your question, but yes, you're absolutely right. And that, when I talked about the commodity super cycles earlier, and we talked about new sources of demand, and in the past, they've always been geographic. You know, I mentioned Britain and Germany and US and Korea and Japan and China. But maybe the super cycle or a segment of the commodity, the super cycle affecting a segment of the commodities will be caused by that new source of demand for electric vehicles. There's no question that the switch to 
electric vehicles, and it's not just electric vehicles, it's electrification in general, if there's no question that that is going to occur, it is occurring, it is occurring, and there's no question that it will continue. I personally have, I'm a skeptic on how quickly, you know, um, the Ferrari driver will want to be driving an electric uh, Ferrari uh, at the current stage of development. But, um, but there's no question that that's happening. Especially if it's quiet, right? Part of it is they want to be heard. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't like Ferraris just to, you know, just for record. Um, they, they're sort of, here I am, listen to me and look at me. Um, but um, the dirty little secret is not such a secret anymore, but the dirty little secret of the green energy uh, folks is that all of the things they're advocating take more base metals to produce. So a typical electric vehicle uses about four times as much copper as an internal combustion one and five times as much nickel. And where does that copper and nickel come from? It, where does it come from? It comes from mines. And that's the dirty little secret. So I think if we continue that drive uh, towards electrification, we're going to have huge demand. And I can't quantify it at the moment because it just depends on how quickly it happens. Excellent. Well, Adrian, your website is adriandayassetmanagement.com. For new listen, listeners in particular, what can they find there? Oh, we've got a lot of interviews, including yours. We've got a lot of interviews, videos, articles, um, as well as information about our services, of course. But, um, you know, we pretty much post every interview I do. And we keep it there for a while so that you can see how wrong I was. Right. <laughs> so you have an honest track record then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I try to be honest. I that's that's one thing I try to be. There was no accusation in what I said. No, no, so, I yeah. know. I'm trying to think of something clever to say. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Adrian, I'll uh, reach out to you about three months. I really appreciate these frequent interviews. So thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000 and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.